0: Hello, wonderful listeners, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases pharmacist podcast. My name is Jeanette Bouchard, and I am a liaison clinical pharmacist with the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network, or DASON. Today, we will be discussing a topic that has been on everyone's mind for probably the last six months or so, and that's accreditation updates. So today we will focus specifically on NHSN AR requirements and the College of American Pathologists requirements, the latter of which have gone into place this month, January 2024. For time reasons, we won't go too much into AU requirements, recognizing that these do intertwine with AR requirements as they're part of the same module, but most hospitals in the US have been voluntarily reporting to this prior to the requirement. And so there are more data and resources delving into the utility of this function. Now, based on my own practice, as well as I think many others that I've talked to in the community, this topic has come up in almost every conversation in the last year. Although my practice is very stewardship focused, so I'm probably a little bit biased in that, especially since my job specifically is for community hospitals and helping them with regulatory requirements. But I do think these updates do have major implications to both the lab side of stewardship as well as stewardship programs as a whole. And now this episode is extra special because we will be having a host of another great microbiology-based podcast, Let's Talk Micro. And he will join us for the micro portion, as well as giving some extra updates for anything that has to do with the AR portion of our talk today. So without further ado, let's start by introducing Luis Plaza. Luis is a lead medical laboratory scientist in microbiology at a hospital system in Orlando, Florida. He is also a microbiology instructor for the medical laboratory sciences program at the University of Central Florida. Having a desire to learn and share information, he created the Let's Talk Micro podcast, And on his podcast, he explains clinical microbiology in simple terms. So he goes over organisms, reactions, and brings on guests relevant to the field of microbiology to speak to their experience and share their knowledge with the pod world.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for the opportunity as a listener of this podcast. It's a great feeling to be a guest in it. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Awesome. So next up to help us discuss all of the micro talk, is Dr. Jose Alexander, who actually worked with another Breakpoints host, the great Jillian Hayes, who describes him as an A-plus human who loves marvel, photography, and restoring old cars and guitars. But also, he is the clinical director of microbiology laboratory at Advent Health in Orlando. He obtained his medical degree in the Central University of Venezuela and specialized in medical microbiology. He is board certified by the ABMM, CBIC, and ASCP. His role involves the technical oversight of the microbiology lab, providing consultation for ID physicians and pharmacists regarding test interpretation, antimicrobial resistance and testing, and is a member of the Infection Prevention and Antimicrobial Stewardship Committees. Dr. Alexander's, or Alex, as we'll refer to him today, his main focus is in antimicrobial resistance and testing, implementation of next-generation sequencing, and implementation of analytical data-driven solutions and AI.
2: Thank you very much for having me. As you mentioned, I work closely with Louis, and I think I've been an opportunity to be in his podcast a few times. Thank you very much for the invitation, and and thanks also to Jillian for the work. It was very great to work with her when I had the opportunity.
0: Yes, she is a very big fan, so great to have you here. And then last, but certainly not least, is Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, who is well-known around the stewardship community, and he has also been working hard to provide us with information regarding NHSN updates. I also think he's given a few talks in the last week or so on AR for specifically the pharmacy community, but the stewardship community as a whole. And he's actually been on the pod before to discuss the CDC core elements in episode 15. So he is one of our original speakers here on the podcast. For those that don't know him, he is the Deputy Director for Program Improvement in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and a Captain in the United States Public Health Service. He is board-certified in infectious diseases, and before coming to the CDC, he was an assistant professor of medicine in the Infectious Diseases Division at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where he was the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Antibiotic Management Program and the associate hospital epidemiologist. His primary responsibilities include oversight and coordination of efforts to eliminate healthcare associated infections and reduce antibiotic resistance. His research and investigative areas of concentration have included outbreak investigations, infection control, multi-drug resistant gram-negative pathogens, and now focus on hospital antimicrobial stewardship. He has also published more than 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals on his research in healthcare epidemiology, infection control, and antimicrobial use and resistance.
3: So welcome. Thanks so much, Jeanette. such a pleasure to be back on the podcast uh, and look forward to chatting today. Really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Yeah,
0: it's always great when we have our original speakers come back around. I think we're going to hit 100 episodes this year, so to have someone in the first year and then come back during our 100th episode year is really great. So I'm happy to have such amazing experts on our pod today. Uh, Let's get started. We're going to jump right into everything AR first, and we'll shift to the College of American Pathologists requirements, or what I will affectionately refer to them as CAP requirements, not to be confused with pneumonia, which has happened a lot when I'm texting about this topic to other people. So Arjun, would you be able to tell us about these AR requirements, what they are, who needs to be submitting them and what active engagement means?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the AR requirements, as you mentioned, it's actually an AUR requirement, right? And so it's antibiotic use and resistance reporting together. And as you mentioned earlier, Jeanette, you know, over 3,000 hospitals have already submitted antibiotic use data to CDC's uh, NHSN, National Healthcare Safety Network. So there's quite a bit of familiarity with that. There are a lot of hospitals, uh, about uh, 1,700 have actually submitted AR data, but, but there's obviously quite a lag uh, there. There's quite a difference. The AR option was launched later. But this requirement comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, as part of the standard that they call promoting interoperability. And some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, terminology called meaningful use, which was the, you know, the prior iteration of this promoting interoperability standard. But this is a, a requirement from CMS that is intended to promote the interoperability of electronic health records, right? So that's where it gets its name. and. Within this promoting interoperability standard, there are a number of different requirements. And one of the sections is called the public health data exchange, because one of the priorities for the government, including CMS, is to make sure that clinical entities, clinicians, offices, hospitals, other types of nursing, homes, all different types of providers can exchange data with public health. And right, there certainly a tremendous illustration of how important that is during the pandemic. And that continues to be a gap for us where we really would like better ways for people to be able to report information to us rather than having to do it manually. And so that's what this requirement is trying to do. The Promoting Interoperability Standard is trying to build that foundation for this electronic data exchange. So last, a couple of years ago, CMS added this requirement into the Promoting Interoperability Standard. And it's a requirement that all uh, hospitals, uh, including critical access hospitals, who are part of the Promoting Interoperability Program report their antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance data into the National Healthcare Safety Network. And this is a—it's an all or nothing, so you have to do both AU and AR. And it's important to note that this has really broad applicability, right? There are very few exemptions for this. Most hospitals in the country participate in the Promoting Interoperability Program, so they get money for this program. And that means that if you don't participate, if you don't comply, there are payment penalties that can uh, be put in place. And obviously, we don't want anyone to be penalized. So, really important for people to understand this is a payment program. It has some significant implications. Uh, for folks. So this is definitely something that we want people to be aware of and to be really on top of. The exclusions are, like I said, they're pretty rare. So they would be somebody, a hospital that has no patients who were hospitalized uh, in in a given year, uh, or a hospital that doesn't have electronic lab systems or electronic pharmacy systems or electronic ADT systems. So those are the exclusions. If you don't meet any of those, then you are required to do this reporting And as you said or alluded to, this is what CMS calls an attestation reporting requirement, right? So they're not really interested in the actual data. In fact, CDC is not sending this data to CMS. What they are interested in is making sure that people are actually doing the reporting. So what you have to certify, you have to attest to the fact that you are doing the reporting. And there are two different ways that you can meet that requirement the, to attest to. The first is what they call the, the pre-production data submission. And so what this means is that you have to enroll in NHSN. And I mean, most hospitals in the country are, of course, enrolled in NHSN because they're doing HAI reporting as a, as a requirement. And then you have to submit some test files to NHSN into the AUR option. So these would be AR test files, because we're talking about AR today. And that's all you have to do so if you are kind of at a really early stage in this you can do that pre-production step and you can pause there so if you're not ready to go ahead and move into actual data reporting for the first year of the program for 2024 you can do the pre-production requirement so that's option one Option two is what they call production data submission, right? So if you're ready to go and ready to submit, then you can go ahead and submit your AR data in order to meet the requirement that you have to submit six continuous months of the AR data. So what that means is that, you know, if you're not online uh, and reporting your data by July, you won't be able to accrue that six months that you need to, to report. So if you're looking to do the production data submission, uh, you need to get that uh, accomplished in the first six months of the year. So those are the, the two ways you can meet the requirement. It's important to know that you can only spend one year in the pre-production stage. So if you say, hey, 2024, we're, we're just not quite ready to do the reporting, we're gonna do the pre-production we're going to register with NHSN, we're going to submit the test files, but we're not ready to submit six months of data. In 2025, everybody will have to submit at least six months of of data. The only other thing that I'll, I'll mention in my opening comments is to circle back to this issue of whether or not people are going to get paid based on their rates of antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance, This has come up a lot. People are very, very nervous about this. And they've said, oh, this is the start of a slippery slope. And they're just going to start here. And then there's going to be a requirement. And I think it's really important for people to understand that all of this reporting requirement, this isn't a completely different part Of the regulations from what they're familiar with, right? So, all of the stuff with the payment penalties for reporting, those are in completely different programs, right? Those are in things called like the the inpatient quality reporting program or the healthcare associated conditions reporting program. Those are completely different from this. So, CMS is not even getting any of this data. They do not want the AU and the AR data because under promoting interoperability, they don't want the actual data, they only want people to attest that they're reporting. So this is not the first step uh, towards payment penalties for high rates of use or resistance. It's just not something that is being discussed or on the table right now. But I think really important for your listeners to know that because administrators may not be familiar with that and it's important for them to be armed with that information.
0: Yeah, very important to know you're not getting dinged for specific yeah, Absolutely not. Features.
3: Absolutely not. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, I do want to circle back to your difference between the two different types of attestation. So for facilities, I would presume in the first category of you're not quite ready are maybe those bringing on new vendors and kind of building up their systems. And so the vendors can submit a few examples of their data, but have a full year to get it up and running. Is that correct?
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you're kind of early on in the process, you have you know basically the entire year to kind of get things figured out, and really a year and six months, right? Because the requirement is for six months of continuous data. So if you're in an early stage and you need to do pre-production data this year, you have quite a bit of time to get things sorted out work with your vendors to get things into position where you can do the data submission obviously you know we think this data is useful to people we want people to submit it as quickly as they can so they can have access to it you know the ar option there's a lot of different reports and things that you can generate with your ar data and so just like we think people have f- found the au data to be useful we know people are finding the ar reporting to be useful as well i mean there were 1,500 hospitals that were doing this reporting before there was any requirement. So clearly, people are finding utility and having access to this information. Yeah,
0: I think a lot of hospitals were panicking that like, we have to get everything submitted by, you know, this upcoming year. And two very big takeaways are you will not get dinged for your hospital resistance rates. And you do have a little bit of lead time into this specific requirement. so
3: Absolutely. And there's um, tons, as, as I'm sure all your listeners know, there's tons of information about all of this on the NHSN website, uh, including a really nice list of frequently asked questions. These are the type of things that come up a lot. And so as we get these questions, we've been getting answers, in some cases actually getting answers from directly from CMS uh, so that we can have a one-stop shop for people who have questions about how to do this there's videos on how to do the test files and so there's really a lot of information that's available on the website
0: so there is a vendor list on the cdc website as well of pre-specified approved vendors that are able to submit this data and so it does have to be a pre-specified vendor correct submitting the data
3: yeah. it has to be right a vendor who is capable of, of doing the reporting that's correct
0: okay and then it- also the validation workbook that you just spoke about, I have used at my previous institution. And so it is very comprehensive and it really walks you through every step that you need. And it also helps you work with your vendor to make sure that the reports that are coming out from your vendor are appropriate for submission to the CDC. So really great workbook. And it goes through, if you want extra details added to your reports, you can go this way, but these are not required. And so I really encourage our listeners to take a look at that validation workbook from the CDC when they're going through this process in the next year or so.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you touched on this earlier. And this obviously is a space that requires tremendous partnership with the microbiology lab because the data is is so fundamentally important to us in the work that we do in antibiotic stewardship and it's coming out of the, the micro lab. But I mean, I, I think the good news is, you know, find me a stewardship pharmacist who doesn't already have a great relationship with their microbiology lab, right? These are people who I, I know all of your listeners are already working with, but there's this added wrinkle of the IT piece. And that, let's face it, that just, that takes time, right? And so we want people to get started on this early because we know the IT stuff can be a little complicated.
0: Have you guys, Luis or Alex, heard anything down the line about AR? Or have you had to have discussions with your stewardship pharmacists about this? Maybe specifically how it's being reported
2: yeah, right now we are in the process of discussion with antimicrobial stewardship. I know that we are uh, modifying some of our dashboard specifically to be able to continue tracking some of the antimicrobial resistance utilization. We are setting or actually expanding antimicrobial stewardship committee because we have a system with multiple facilities. So we are working right now in the standardization process across multiple facilities, and I believe that actually it will be and multiple divisions too, so nationwide, ultimate nationwide cover stewardship discussion. I believe we are in the early stage. We are in the process of putting together some of the data, but also to be able to set up the transfer of the information.
0: Yeah, so close interworking relationships with Micro is really key here. I know when I was um, starting with Dayson and a lot of my sites, Micro is the first person to kind of be lined for in a lot of the stewardship meetings because I know um, we have a lot of inter locking requirements to meet in the next year and we can be each other's best friend throughout that process so very important to be in close contact with your local micro for sure i think arjun you mentioned specifically that there's a lot of interesting things that we're going to be able to do with this ar data so would you be able to expand upon those kind of dreams and goals for what we'll we'll be able to do in the future with this
3: yeah and you know i i will honestly say, I think we're really early in stages of understanding all of the applications and of the ways that people can use the AR data. Uh, Honestly, it's something that we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of, even with the antibiotic use data, which we have quite a bit more experience with. And and Jeanette, you know better than anybody because Daysan has been working on an effort with us to try and collect some of these experiences to ask people, you know, how are you using your AU data? Let's gather some use cases. So I think there will be much, much more to come on how hospitals can use the AR data. One of the things I'm kind of especially interested in, though, at the national level is the ability to pair the antibiotic use and the antibiotic resistance data. And I think this will be something that will be of, of, I think, a lot of interest to hospitals as well. And, you know, when, when I think about this at the national level, I, I think about it both from the perspective of potential Overuse and misuse, but also from a perspective of potential underuse and patient safety. And the example that I always cite is: you know, we, we have some drugs now that are approved for the treatment of carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis, right? So they have way better safety profiles and things like colistin. So the, the question then becomes: well, you know, are there hospitals in this country that are using tons of these agents? but don't have any isolates of CRE, or rarely encounter CRE. And and the question there becomes, that that may be perfectly justified, right? This may be a hospital where the patients are getting their micro results from some other place, they come into the hospital as transfers with CRE, and so they get started on CASAVI, for example. Totally appropriate, right? But important to understand, why is there a hospital that's using so much of this agent with apparently so little CRE in their hospital might be an opportunity for stewardship. And then what about the flip side, right? What if there are hospitals out there where they have a lot of CRE, but they use very little or none of this agent? Again, could be totally appropriate. These could all be colonizing uh, isolates. None of them actually causing infections. Although, you know, if you're looking at a lot of blood isolates, I'd be really curious to know. I might want to talk to a hospital to say, "Hey, you know, we're seeing a fair number of CRE isolates from blood in your hospitals, and and you guys aren't using very much of these agents that are designed to treat these infections. Uh, Maybe you're you have some secret, you know, there's something you're doing therapeutically that others of us could learn from, or should you be using more of these? Or these hospitals that aren't as familiar with some of these agents and could use some updated information or some training. So that's." Just one example that comes to mind on the ways that we might be able to use the pairing of the AR and AU data, both a kind of a hospital-specific, a regional, a state, and a national.
2: I think you mentioned a very significant and important point that we actually have discussed internally in our system. It's typical when we compare our data to utilization data with other facilities. And sometimes we forget that sometimes antimicrobial resistant definition of multidrug resistant organism can vary between institutions um, sometimes we don't have the same level of screening for organism like a carbapenem resistant versus a carbapenem producing enterobacterialis for example could be could completely skew a statistic between of data between two institutions and now how you mentioned we new agents we probably get into the point that we are developing guidelines and even policies that can implement the use of this new agent in a specific organism resistant date, and i think that will be interesting to see um, especially comparing against our own resistant rates versus what is trending in the same regions because even between institutionally or close um, regions sometimes we see completely different resistant patterns based on population So I think that's one of the more significant aspects of of these data that we are excited to see and being able to put this in perspective. I think this will make a lot of um, opportunity for laboratories to even standardize criteria and classification of organisms.
3: Yeah, that's awesome, Alex. Thank you for that.
0: I definitely think that also brings up how are we handling the differences in lab practices? So I I know with the Capricorn, which we'll get into a little bit later, we're working on standardizing a lot of these uh, susceptibility reporting across different manufacturers, but how is the NHSN going to mitigate those differences across different labs?
3: Yeah, I, you know, that it's an ongoing challenge and we, we don't have a solution for it at this point. You know, we, we know that there are... There are a lot of differences in what people test, how people test. And, you know, the other big challenge for us, of course, is there are also differences in terms of what's available to people to report, right? Are you getting this data pre-suppression? So, you know, getting it right off the machine where you have access to everything that was tested or, you know, are you getting it post-suppression where you're only getting it after all of your local manufacturer and local suppression rules have been applied? You know, in in our dream world, we would love to, to... have everybody be able to connect the data feed from the pre-suppression data right so that we could get everything but we know that you know saying that you have to do that would create some massive barriers to reporting because that's just not in scope for a lot of places right they're like look we have no way of getting it right off the machine we have to get it out of the electronic uh, lab record uh, so we're grappling with that. And so we're we're always open to anyone who has great ideas for how we can do this and and figure this out and solve this problem. Uh, But we recognize that this is gonna be a barrier, that the data that come in, it's gonna be a little bit of a mix uh, in terms of what we have. Uh, We'll have to take it for what it is. We'll do the best we can with it. And then we'll work to make it better as we learn and move forward and uh, seeing what we can do.
0: Yeah, definitely one of those downsides of having that third-party vendor. I know this is a, a very, common issue where maybe you use soft on the lab side and so when it gets that third-party vendor it's just from what's being able to push from soft to whatever your mar system Mm -hmm. is and you do end up with a lot of gaps i know at my previous institution that we were submitting through a third-party vendor so our gaps were there for sure but i think what we've learned through the au process is as soon as these hospitals start reporting and start working with this data there starts to become improvements from the end user side of things and so i'm um, hoping once more people are submitting ar we can kind of fill those gaps and see if there's other ways around these standard practices that we've just accepted in our practice i know anyone yeah. who's made an antibiogram is like dealt with that pain of cascade reporting
3: well and, and i think it's a really good point and you know i think alex kind of touched on this as well is that i think one of the historical problems with AR data is that we've mostly looked at it in a a siloed hospital level fashion or at a lab level, right? We really have not uh, had a concerted effort on an ongoing basis to look at AR data regionally, nationally, because it's hard to get, right? It's hard to get access to this information. You know, the efforts that have been done in the past is it's from a purchased data set or a consortium of places that voluntarily submit the data or a drug company that has access to, you know, a central lab or something like that. So this will be the first system where we have kind of ongoing public access to a large amount of AR data. And so this is a new frontier for all of us, but I think it's really important.
0: Great. And I think all of this micro talk is a really good segue into our... College of American Pathologists requirement. So we'll pivot to CAP and a little bit more into the micro accreditation and probably going to throw the reins over to Luis and Alex on this one as they are going to be our experts in this realm, as opposed to Arjun and I, who are the stewy experts on this pod today. So Luis, do you want to start off by explaining the new requirements from CAP and when they should be implemented and what kind of micro labs are thinking throughout this process?
1: Yeah, definitely. There were some concerns from CAP already about the breakpoints at the last two reporting surveys and then following a, a survey and some responses. So they came up with these requirements, uh, which one of them is MIC 1135, which is uh, effective January 1, 2024. The laboratory uses current breakpoints for interpretation of antimicrobial minimum inhibitory concentration and this diffusion test results and implements the breakpoints within three years of the official publication by the FDA or other standards development organization, which is abbreviated as SDO. So for example, the breakpoints from the CLSI, Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute, used by the laboratory. And then they made an update to MIC 11380, which is for antimicrobial susceptibility testing systems. There are written criteria for determining and interpreting minimal inhibitory concentrations or zone diameter size as susceptible, intermediate, resistant, non-susceptible, or susceptible dose-dependent. And this is reviewed annually. And then they also added MIC21855, which is the antimicrobial-resistant markers by molecular analysis, uh, which says clinical ability requires the detection of genotypic antimicrobial-resistant markers, for example, BAN-A, a to be a link or attributed to a corresponding organism the final laboratory report. So those in the, in the audience that are listening, that you're a medical lab scientist and you're running some sort of molecular test where you get you know, one of these markers, like, in, like McKay, you know, BAN-A. So when you have your final report, you have an actual organism. For a great example, would be BAN-A is detected and then your final report is a vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. So those are the three.
0: Yeah. And I think the biggest one there is definitely the January 1st one of making sure your breakpoints are updated and validated. So a, a little bit more. So what does like updated breakpoints mean? What entity is it being updated with, or can you just have your own?
2: So the CAF requirement that is actually now the revised checklist. And just to, to do a little bit of the background. So every laboratory has to be certified. In the united states cap is one of the accreditation agencies that actually add a different level of a little more strict in in some of the process of accreditation so and the way to do it is they publish a checklist the laboratory should be able to follow they specify how to report certain organism how to do certain testing uh, and what is the, the the compliance that needs to be done around that so there is a new checklist and now it's a revised checklist as um, Louis mentioned um the microbiology checklist 11385 that is the current antimicrobial susceptibility to interpretation breakpoint and what they indicate is that by january 1st 2024 laboratory has to have updated breakpoints or so at least those that were published within three years so technically the laboratory want to update a up, uh, breakpoints now in january so the last publication of the breakpoint that you can use is 2021 because below uh, before that will be more than three years so i think it's something that was needed there is a lot of laboratory with updated breakpoints especially in the area of the cephalosporin you still can see laboratory testing for esbl making changes to interpretation and using all breakpoints for cephalosporin and i think that is necessary for laboratory to be able to keep up as part of the regulatory effort so what this means is that you prefer susceptibility testing, the combination of drug, antimicrobial, the interpretation need to be based on a publication that is no later than three years old. And I think to be able to perform this update, that they have a lot of technical and statistic analysis that need to be done, is very important for laboratories to get an agreement with antimicrobial stewardship group, infection disease, and pharmacy. So. The laboratory should not be just going and doing a validation process and making a change without notifying or without having a whole conversation and approval. The way that we normally do and the way that I recommend laboratories to do to be able to be in compliance with this is to bring this to the antimicrobial stewardship with a plan. The laboratory has to do some internal work. The best way to start is probably after February or the beginning of every year because that's when the CLSI released the new um, breakpoint. The previous year, normally, the CLSI released some communication about the changes that are coming. If your laboratory used CLSI, that probably would be the best way to get the new breakpoint and compare against what you report, organism by organism, and based on the different methods that the facility performs. If it's an automated MIT platform, or if it's a straight gradient method, or if it's a disk. As soon as you have all the information and you know what breakpoints are out of date based on the new CNSI, you can bring that to the antimicrobial uh, stewardship, to provide information that has to be updated because that can have significant impact. We're just moving that breakpoint of the uh, people are feeling Tassobacter for cephalosporin, for example. We now can see that probably we're going to be having more resistance to the morning. And if the is one of the main drugs that we use empirically for patients who are taking to have Pseudomonas infection, we know that can have an impact on the empirical treatment that we have in the facility. So having this conversation and agreement is critical, and having the approval and antimicrobial stewardship for the update is also significant. Now it's important for the laboratory to emphasize that if we don't have this update, this will be negatively impacting the creation of the laboratory. So. The decision has to be made to be able to adjust and adapt to this new breakpoint and be allowed the laboratory to perform the validation process. One of the interesting things we actually validating is not the MIC, but it's the interpretation, the breakpoint itself. So validation process with a categorical agreement is sufficient to be able to be in compliance with, with the validation process for the for this new capture So we need to make sure that the interpretation that we're applying to the result is following the new or the latest publication for that breakpoint. The best way also, or some of the process that should be done laboratory is create an automatic annual revision by February or March of every year to be able to see what are the breakpoints that are out of place. You have three years to implement it. So that doesn't mean that if you are up to date, next year there is a change and for some reason, the stewardship program feel that we don't want to make the update this year. That is fine. You still have three years to make the changes. So there is some flexibility in the process, but an agreement and conversation is critical. The other point important is some of the changes on breakpoints are going beyond susceptible intermediate resistance. Some of them have susceptible um, susceptible, doses dependent, and resistance. Depending on the laboratory information system that we use it. Some of them don't have this option, susceptible drug dependent. So these are limitation the barriers. The laboratory need to be able to, in conversation with antimicrobial stewardship and with the, with the IT team, trying to overcome because this could be a significant barrier for some of the breakpoints update to be implemented.
1: So definitely a lot of information, Dr. Alexander touched on right. Knowing what breakpoints you have, and then what are you using are the FDA, are they CLSI breakpoints? And then also having when are the breakpoints from what publications, what year were they, were they published? And then when were the last revised in the lab? So that's definitely very important. So the requirements are at least to have the FDA, most updated breakpoints, but you can also choose to do the CLSI. Um, There's some process to this where you have to do if it's an FDA Breakpoint, you can do a verification. And then if it's a CLSI, mm-hmm. you have to do a validation. And um, any, I don't know if you want to add more on that, Alex. Uh,
2: yeah. So many manufacturers, especially ASC devices, they come with SDA breakpoint. We know that there is some CLSI FDA agreement in some of the breakpoint. So if there is a, a recognized CLSI breakpoint by the FDA, and that's the one that is it. F- Technically, become the FDA point. The instrument already comes with that specific breakpoint. Now, when we talk about device automated panel for multiple antimicrobials, we're going to have the combination of some drug box FDA, some drug box that are not FDA, but you want to use the CSI. So, the best process and tweak the whole process of validation instead of verification as the validation. In a way, you don't have to pinpoint the specific combination, but you just treat all of them as the validation, they fulfill the verification process for the FDA. The process moving from the FDA to any other breakpoint has to do a validation. Because we're technically modifying an FDA approved method. And this validation process start with identifying if it's equipment or process that you already have implemented, start with identifying what is the antimicrobial that have the breakpoint updated. Uh, what are the organisms that will be affected for this new upgrade? What is the change on the break and in interpretation? So the next step in this particular case is using our automated method. What is the range of dilution that you have for that organism? Is your platform able to cover the new interpretation method? Right? There is some typical traditional case with the fastolin in some of the vital cards that the minimal yeah, dilution was four. Exactly. <laughs> So the meaning of the was four. So if you have a breakpoint now that goes to two, you know that your method will have a limitation in that particular scenario. So it's okay for urine sample, for urine isolate, but not for non-urine. So this is the type of limitation that the laboratory had to identify. And so you identify that, and you know what is the drug ball combination that you have to validate. You have to pick a validation method. The CDC has the antimicrobial resistant bank that could be helpful to get from them specific organism, they are free. I always recommend laboratories to, to get those isolate and keep them because they can become helpful when you need to do this type of validation they already have MIC and they have some of the interpretation. But since the validation that has to be performed is a categorical agreement, one of the best methods to compare for the validation to use as a reference is use this diffusion This diffusion is a, it's a reference method and also provide the interpretation of the breakpoint that is a specific data set that will be used for the validation process. We need to make sure that when we make the change in our automated system with a new interpretation or the new breakpoint, when we do the reference method and we run the isolate again on the, on the automated platform, we need to make sure that the automated platform is able to assign the correct interpretation and this is able to replicate with the reference method. That in this case is the distribution. If you use an automatic platform they have all the clinical rules, the FDA, the CLSI, so that is the adjustment that has to be done. After the validation is done and it's approved following the specific characteristic of the validation with very major error, major error that is acceptable, and the categorical agreement, you need to have this approved by your medical director. So your laboratory medical director, your clear director, is the responsible for accepting or deeming the validation as acceptable, and that will be part of the documentation to fulfill the new CAP requirement. This change, if you don't have no change in the instrument, but you have a your EMR or your laboratory information system, the adjustment has to be done in the LIS. And as Arjun mentioned before, I believe that this is a process that we went a few years ago, If we start moving all our rules, suppression rules, clinical rules from our instrument to our LIS. So we now allow our automatic system to transfer all the data with no interpretation and our LIS algorithm are the one making the changes and are the one making the changes to be released to the EMR. So the interpretation of an adjustment and all the rules have been applied on the LIS, and that allows us to have access to the raw data for antibiogram every year. So we are able to see what is the Typical MIC distribution of meropenem for calvapenem-resistant enterovacenallis. Instead to just say, all of the are resistant. So some of the discussion that we've been having, and right now we are in the process to implement some updates of the breakpoints. That's a long process, especially if you have multiple to validate. But it's a process that can be achieved, at least a review, a review can be done in an annual base. And you know that you can keep up with this particular checklist and with your breakpoint. Can be every two years. That is the period of time for the cap infection. So you can actually set also that revision for every two years.
1: And I think maybe something that comes to the listener to their mind is as we're talking about this, we have all different sizes of hospitals and sometimes, you know, we have smaller facilities, we have larger and, and I can speak from personal experience that I have been both. So I'm, you know, fortunate enough that I work in a large facility where we have access to someone with expertise and, and but sometimes that's not always the case. So we're hearing all this talk about, we need to validate breakpoints. We haven't started in January of this year. Oh well, my goodness, what do I do? Where do I start? And, and I want to talk more about this. There are toolkits out there. There's actually a great one that was published, which was a joint effort by the CMSI, APHL, ASM, CAP and CDC which really breaks it down. Alex, have you had a chance to check this tool and then maybe share any thoughts on it? And then I'll go ahead and follow up on that.
2: Yeah, the tool is is informative, but it's also practical. You can use some of the templates that they provide. The template allows you to just follow a series of steps from the beginning to the process of collecting data, deciding what is the microbiome that you need to validate, how do you do the data collection And then also allow you the template allow you to populate the data and perform the statistic analysis allow you to calculate very major error major errors minor errors and also the categorical agreement so provide guidance how to interpret a validation as successful or not so for facilities that don't have as you mentioned the microbiology expertise on campus This toolkit is an excellent way to start to try to delimitate the issue and the changes that the laboratory has to do. Now, if you don't have access to, let's say a microbiology director, or you don't have access to um, a clinical microbiology expertise, managers and supervisor in the microbiology laboratory, they have a lot of technical expertise. What they need is a little bit of clinical guidance. So I always recommend to just and talk with your pharmacy, especially when infection disease pharmacy and you're doing antimicrobial stewardship. That is the best contact that you can have to be able to understand how do you need to implement these technical changes that you know how to do it, but you need to know how and when you need to make those changes. So I always tell them, infection disease pharmacy, to be honest, for me are the right hand that you have for microbiology and for those that don't have that, microbiology, clinical expertise, the pharmacy is the best option.
0: We appreciate that. Shout out (laughs) greatly, especially since we love working so closely with micro. But a little bit about that toolkit, something that I find really, really impressive is that someone went through and created an Excel worksheet that literally lists out the FDA and the CLSI most recent breakpoints and compares them. And I think that's wonderful because that's everything that I needed in my life. while going through this process <laughs> with MicroLab is yeah. someone to put that in one document, <laughs> rather than having like the CLSI up and then the FDA up and going through like the FDA stick drug list to try to compare them. So, really yeah. big props to whoever created that Excel spreadsheet because it was it's very helpful.
1: I like what Alex said about. People sometimes might be unaware about the kind of, of knowledge and expertise that, that medical lab scientists and microbiology carry. And definitely doing this job requires a lot of technical knowledge and and repetition, which builds on that expertise. And like you said, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of guidance and where to ask and definitely asking the pharmacist. And one thing that I have learned by using, you know, my podcast is just there's so many people out there that they just they're willing to answer your questions. They're willing to share their expertise with you. All you have to do is ask, and it's most people. They're wonderfully nice, and then yeah, right away they will answer your questions. So don't be afraid. You know, a lot of people they they do talks, they do webinars, they put their email address out there. Feel free to just reach out and, and ask your questions. And people in this community, from pharmacists to ID dogs to microbiologists, I think everyone's been really wonderful and this toolkit like i sat down and I actually has a tutorial step by step with videos on, on what you're doing and i do just it really poked through my heart and, and the spirit of let's talk micro is about breaking things down making it easy as, as you can right and just breaking it down with you know all the sections and it just it, it really helps out especially if you find yourself in a place where it's a great tool and you know even starts at the at the beginning, with the first part that we talked about, which was finding what your breakpoints. So there's a spreadsheet where you can say, okay, is this breakpoint? Where's the information? Do I have it in the MIS? Do I have it in the health record? What instruments I'm using? It has all the sections. So What year are the breakpoints? When were they revised? So great step to start gathering all that information. And also brings a question that's it's in the toolkit as well, but something that people might not be aware of. So what do we do if you don't have a uh, enough isolates.
0: How many isolates do you need to validate? How many do you exactly need? Or is there an exact number?
2: So between validation and verification change, for validation is 30 plus 1, and when it's verification can be left, around probably 20, 15 to 20. Now, those are recommendations. It's important that the medical director for the laboratory actually is able to set the design of the validation with the minimum amount of organisms required. So, for example, for us, we use 30 as a verification, but 60 or more for validation. So, we're trying to include more. you validating a specific drop bug combination for the breakpoint, but when you do a validation like a panel or that you can apply to multiple organisms, the the way to distribute for organisms is the way that you see the clinical distribution of organisms in clinical samples. Like, for example, a panel for gram-negative, that include enterobacterialis. You know the E. coli and Klebsiella will probably be the most predominant organism that you see. It's a non process. I mean, verification and validation take time. And also, you need to make sure that you include all the range of MIC that are able to trigger the different interpretations. So, unsusceptible, intermediate, and resistant organisms. And the challenge happens, too, when you have to validate a breakpoint that there is not a lot of resistant organisms. So, that becomes a little challenging, because you need to be able to prove that the platform or the method that you're using is able to capture organisms that are non-susceptible. So that can become challenging in the validation process.
0: So for the drugs that cover CREs, for instance, it's more difficult to validate exactly. those.
2: Exactly. So that's when those panels, like the CDC panel, or even some of the quality control isolates that are known to carry specific system mechanisms against the drug become helpful to be able to be part of the validation process.
0: Well, that explains a lot about why a lot of labs are so far behind on... <laughs> yeah these standards. I think Luis was talking about a a survey that happened. I think that was the Seminar and colleagues survey out of OFID back in 2022 that said a lot of the labs had obsolete breakpoints. And of those, 55% of them had no plans to update those. And a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that you're having to validate with 30 organisms or depending on you guys have a bigger hospital, so you guys are able to do more there. But for some of our smaller community hospitals, validating 30 organisms is a feat when you have one senior tech working yeah. a day, you know?
2: And, and and one more thing is about validation of breakpoint. is not a common practice. Sadly, it's not a common practice. Validation of new platforms like a molecular diagnostic, a PCR method, validation of a new strip or a diff, validation of a whole antimicrobial panel, is probably not as common as so we think. A validation of a whole Vitec or Phoenix car or of any other of the automated system take long time. So laboratories are now doing validation for this panel maybe every six, seven, eight years. So you're trying to don't change it, at least that you really need. And then when we talk about validation of breakpoints, that is only validation of the interpretation, that adds a whole new, and I will say, very unusual validation process for laboratory that I'm no use to. You tell a laboratory you need to validate a new MRSA screening for NERS, they know how to do it. We do a PCR validation basically every day. But validate new breakpoint. that's something that doesn't happen frequently. So 2010, 2012, CILICIDE was a change on the breakpoint for some of the of sporing, and then we have the CAVA that was probably the most recent experience the laboratory have engaged on validation of breakpoints. Besides that, it's up to every laboratory when they wanted or needed to do it.
0: So the process to update a breakpoint within, say, a, an AST card or something like that is a little bit different, and maybe labs are not as familiar with that specifically?
2: So if you need to validate a panel, a new panel, So you actually have to validate not only categorical, you also have to validate essential agreement. So you have to validate the MIC distribution, the MIC agreement between the reference method. It's a whole panel. You know that the panel will be used against multiple isolates. Let's say the gram-negative panel for interobacterialis and non-interobacterialis. You have to have a series of organisms distribution between those organisms. And you start validating, you can validate the whole panel what is the essential agreement? How many drug box combinations you have in agreement versus the reference? So it's a tedious and long process. But validating only a breakpoint is something that is not really common. So in this particular scenario, we now don't have to validate the whole panel. We only need to validate one organism, the interpretation of that MIC. So it's it's an easier process, but it's not common for a laboratory to perform.
0: That makes sense. I think fluoroquinolones was also a recent breakpoint update that labs have been known to lag on mm-hmm. as well. I've been in labs where that was lagging, and I had a stewardship specific report where I would run, and it was like patient on fluoroquinolone and MIC is this and organism is this flag. Yeah. So helped overcome some of those barriers while the lab was working on updating the breakpoints. Yeah. All right. So I think teamwork makes the dream work is definitely a theme of today's pod because. I know just personally talking with you guys helps answer a lot of the questions that I'm getting from my smaller community hospitals. One of the biggest questions that you guys have touched on multiple times is that it's within the last three years that these breakpoints need to be updated. And so for this upcoming 2024 year, it's anything that's pre-2021 breakpoint update. And keeping that in mind will help, I think, quell a lot of panic that is happening in the lab because we have those new PIPTASO breakpoints that came out. We have the new aminoglycoside breakpoints that came out from CLSI, but those will not be expected to be updated if you go through a review by CAP this year, correct?
2: Yes, I think laboratories will be able to know what is the CAP checklist edition that will apply to them. So that is significant for them to be aware. If, If the current checklist it was a revision from October 20, October 24, um, I think it was 2022.
0: So big overarching reasons why this is happening and why it's important to make sure you're up to date is one, it affects your accreditation, like Alex said, but two, it affects our patients at the end of the day. And I think that's the, one of the biggest take-homes is we want to be providing the best care for our patients and keeping up with these breakpoints and making sure we're using the best antimicrobial for them is how we're going to do that. All right. And with that, is there any extra cap tidbits of knowledge? I don't know if Luis, you have something to add maybe about tech shortages and how you can work together with other environments. I know you already mentioned reach out to those contacts. People have their emails out there. Dr. Humphreys has presentations all over the place about the cap requirements. And so reach out to your local pharmacist, reach out to your local lab, call up that big institution. I don't know if you have any extra tidbits before we head into our last segment.
1: No, I mean, I think that's, that's pretty much it. And, and as someone that's been on both sides, yeah, it's definitely challenging. And sometimes you're the tech and then you're, you might be a supervisor, but you're also benching 75% of the time and then you have to do other things as well. So I think that was one of the reasons also uh, the results of that survey was, you know, staffing and we talked about knowledge and also the manufacturer.
0: <laughs> Which I think they're working on. <laughs> yeah. It seems like they're slowly getting there to help labs come up to date.
2: So I think what one of the things that Luis mentioned is, and, and I completely agree with him, and something that we see all the time. I mean, the microbiology um, staff, the medical laboratory science working in the microbiology lab, they're highly skillful and knowledgeable staff. So they have not only the microbiology experience or working culture and uh, in a fine organism, But they also have a lot of technical expertise in the way to handle a microbiology laboratory. If you go around and you find many hospitals in the U.S. that they don't have dedicated director of microbiology, in those particular scenarios when you have a pathologist that oversees the whole laboratory, the manager or the supervisor is the right hand of that pathologist. So they know how to coordinate, how to keep the laboratory accredited and moving on. And they know how to take this responsibility and do it. But when the part of the microbiology that could be a little bit of a gap is that clinical portion, is the portion that translates to outside the laboratory. And that's when the communication is important. Our recommendation for facilities that have antimicrobial stewardship and they don't have a microbiology in the meeting is invite your microbiology. Even if you have a laboratory liaison. It's important for you to have a microbiology in the meeting because that make a big difference. And for those microbiology that are right now listening to the podcast is, if you are not invited, call you to your pharmacy and ask them why you are not invited. And make sure that you have time to go to those meetings. Those are very informative. And you can learn a lot to bring back to the laboratory and say, well, they actually ask me for this new antimicrobial because we actually have a rate of resistance and our patients are not responding. So the hospital believes that this is an antimicrobial or we have evidence that this antimicrobial can work. This is why we've been called multiple times why we don't have this antimicrobial in our panel. So I think this is the reason why, and this is why we need to validate and bring it on
0: board. Yeah, get on that stewardship committee. It's important. And also, extra hands, we can help with that spreadsheet that tells you if your breakpoints are up to date or not. I know I've done that for a few hospitals. I've had pharmacy residents do that for micro labs. And so we can help do a lot of those tasks that aren't necessarily like within the micro lab themselves and expand that workforce for micro labs. So definitely get in on that stewardship committee if you are not there already. All right. So last but certainly not least here on this podcast, we're going to pivot to our last segment called I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's edition, I would love to know what your favorite organism is and why. And you also get extra bonus points for nerdy micro-reasons why. And we'll start with Arjun.
3: So my favorite organism, I believe, is probably just because it's the the phonetics of its name is alkaligeny xylosoxidans. I think that just it comes off the tongue yes. so beautifully. So that's uh that's probably <laughs> my favorite organism.
0: Could be my firstborn's name. That's beautiful.
3: Indeed. Indeed.
0: All right, Luis, do you want to go next?
3: Yes.
1: So for me it's actually pastorella um, pastoral overall. And I actually I did an episode on it on my podcast about why I like it so much. Um but I think it just it's it's it comes down to well first of all it's like it, it makes it interesting like a lot of organisms you see them a lot in the lab you know like coli and step forward so it, it tends to be sometimes a little bit better on the bench like here we go you know mers again or here we go we call it, like flint uh but when you get a pastorella it's just you know it's something different and i don't know it just it brings that nerdiness out and like, every time we see something that maybe we don't see as much as microbiologists, you know, it gets us excited to hear something new. We can learn more. We can continue to build that knowledge in our head that helps us become more proficient on our job. But it makes us think on the basis of when we have organisms that we put them on media, right? We definitely know that McConkie and gram-negative rots and and sometimes an unfortunate thing that happens is when, especially maybe new technologists, it's that you see that it's not growing on McConkie and then you assume it's not a, a gram-negative and there are many reasons for that. Unfortunately, the stain, you know, a valuable tool, but it's not being used as much. Uh, but it makes us think of just how different the organism. And for me, it was definitely when I saw pastorella erogenes, because it was a pastorella that grows on that. And that was a very exciting day at the lab uh, when I saw that and, and you did the research. And then you see that it's, it's seen in pigs and, okay, so patients get them when you have a pig bite and you think, okay, Orlando, Seeing a patient with a fake bite, but yeah, that was the history and then we had it. So, I don't know, organisms like this, that they don't follow the quote unquote rules of media that are intended for, they make us do that critical thinking and really do the steps of the research. And at the end, we end up gaining more knowledge. I don't know, I just, I, I really like it.
0: I, you're not the first person in micro that, to tell me that Pastrella is their favorite. Fun fact, that's also my favorite no targets detected on a BCID. So <laughs> it's like my first go-to every time there's a no targets detected as a, my guess for what the organism is going to be. And Alex.
2: So I think I kind of have favorite organisms that change over time. I have one favorite now that we just were able to deal with. Tryptococcus halishori. One of the interesting things with these uh, streptococcus is, as Luis mentioned, challenge some of the dogma in microbiology. When we work on the bench with certain organisms, when you have uh, a positive cocci in chain, actually having some gamma or alpha hemolysis, we always consider that could be a streptococcus or maybe streptococcus. But we know as part of the dogma, they are kind of negative. So you do a catalyst test and they come back negative so this is streptococcus is actually catalyst positive and they can throw off many people working on the bench that if this organism is a streptococcus or as a gram positive cocci catalyst positive it's staphylococcus so that make a difference between both of them right and if you go, go on a little beyond that you know that most staphylococcus are beta lactam is producing when streptococcus are not so this was a very interesting finding that we have recently and also give us the opportunity to see the power of having NGS in-house. Where many of our identification methods have the limitation of this organism we're not able to identify. We were able to by the NGS and then doing going back and doing a literature review. This organism match actually well the NGS identification. So it's like a composite coxin change that is catalyst positive. It's not catalyst negative, so it's a streptococcus. And the other interesting thing is when you hear streptococcus group B, you normally think in streptococcus agalactiae. And traditionally, or so typically, streptococcus agalactiae group B is a beta hemolytic strep. So you see them hemolysis on the plate. Well, this organism is actually a gamma hemolytic, that means it doesn't have any hemolysis and react with the group B of the land field, uh, later, So it's a non-beta hemolytic group B strep. So I think these organisms actually challenge what we know and actually it's a reminder that microbiology is a dynamic field. That as much technology and more we learn, more pathogens, more new organisms we're gonna be acknowledging that they behave a little bit different. So I always say this streptococcus forgot to read the microbiology handbook that they should not be behaving in that way, but probably did care. Well,
0: that's funny. I don't know why I put myself last because I don't know how I'm gonna follow that one up. But mine was gonna be swarming Proteus. So, oh. <laughs> I, you can tell who's in the micro lab during this pod and who isn't. But I, I really like no, um, I. you guys. Yes, yeah. yeah. Arjun's like, this one's got a pretty name. And I'm like, this one looks pretty. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this one's pretty on plate. You can make art with this one.
2: (laughs) Why do you you like the produce?
0: I just think it's cool that it swarms all over the plate. And then that's how you can get a lot of those cool agar plate arts and things like that.
2: Yeah. Well, it's something that microbiology should not do. But sometimes when you're working on the bench and you open the plate, it's a smell. So produce have a very unique smell. Rhylo.
1: So Yes, yeah, so it, it's as web as like they say like chocolate, like burnt chocolate cake, which I don't I don't get that, but it's it's not yeah. something different, you know there. Yeah. And then the swarming is definitely uh yeah. you know, it's a nice pattern. I mean for us on the bench it's it's a nightmare to have produce because you know it's, it's a like aimer, a yeah. get everything you have <laughs> right now because if you see two plus G P C that say on the gram stain and a swarm bird produce, you're gonna have to start bringing other media. So it's like okay evaluate your plate, you see the swarming creeping in, isolate, whatever you can right away because it just, <laughs> it's going to be gone and it's going to be harder to get it
2: out.
0: Yeah, that's why I was like, well, you can tell who the micro people are because I'm like swarming proteas and that's like every technician's nightmare. Oh,
2: yeah. So, yeah, yeah, your family organism is a nightmare.
0: Yeah. it's great. <laughs> this is, it checks out right for me. Yeah.
2: That's what you should say. Why you like proteas? Because it's a nightmare for microbiologists.
0: <laughs> like to make their life hard. Exactly. All right, well, thank you guys so much. I can't thank you enough for being on Breakpoints. I know I've certainly learned a lot of things from this conversation, and I'll definitely be referring back to this pod for any questions from the hospitals I work with. And thank you to our loyal audience for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Jeanette Bouchard, and our featured speakers have been Drs. Arjun Srinivasan, Jose Alexander or Alex, and the amazing podcast host of Let's Talk Micro, Louise Plaza. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jeanette Bouchard, myself, and Megan Klatt. It was edited by Mary Vance and peer-reviewed by Mira Mehta and Anna Zhu. Our production team includes Justin Moore and Mary Hutton. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.